Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Chuck Reed was a tough guy. You know, he was an FBI agent who was very blue collar, bearded, burly, worked a lot of undercover. Chuck was an intimidating person, physically intimidating person. He had earned a reputation for doing dangerous work on the streets and he was somebody who, once he locked on to a target, was not likely to turn away. But at first I kind of thought, you know, he's more like a city police detective than an FBI agent. And it turns out there was a lot of depth there that wasn't immediately apparent. A criminal who knows who Chuck Reed was, who learned that he was on his case, should pack up his bags and leave town immediately. Because Chuck Reed is the kind of agent who was not going to stop until he nailed him. I'm Steve Seidel. This is Wolves Among Us, Episode 4, The Kingpin. Almost all my moves are defensive moves to try to stay out of trouble. He's probably the last person on earth that I would ever expect to be arrested for being a drug dealing kingpin. You're dealing with the federal government, you're dealing with the FBI, you're dealing with the Internal Revenue Service, and you're dealing with the United States Attorney's Office. And they're not prone to bluster. By the time Larry was 27 and just two years out of dental school, he was living in a deluxe home in the upscale neighborhood of Devon, Pennsylvania with a greenhouse, jacuzzi, pool, and a pet Labrador. The home was a two-story white brick colonial that embodied Philadelphia's main line. Larry converted one of the five bedrooms into an office where he displayed his double Dutch bus gold record. He had also purchased a small one-story dental practice on Frankfurt Ave and Ashburner Street in Northeast Philadelphia, and he began hiring staff. So my first impression of him was um, he was just young and ambitious and friendly and eager to get started in the practice. That's Beth Graziani. Beth was Larry's primary assistant and front desk receptionist. She started working for Larry shortly after responding to a newspaper ad. Beth had a lot of experience in dentistry and soon discovered that working for Larry would be different. So the typical dental environment would be sterile and not as relaxed and comfortable, you know, pretty much seriousness and down to business, get people in, get people out, do the dental work and move along with your day. In contrast, Larry's office was super comfortable to be in. It was a small and close environment, so we all got along very well and had fun throughout the day. He treated it as if it were a hobby. The patients loved him. He did magic tricks on a regular basis. 
He was generous. He was generous with pay. He was generous with gifts. He was a generous person. The office Larry had established might have been casual, but it was very well equipped. He had all the -the state-of-the-art dental equipment, an intercom, a stereo system, and multiple telephone lines. He had his uh, telephones set up in each of the operatories so he could take personal calls daily. Quite a few phone calls, pretty regularly in the operatories, basically even while he was working on patients. They were from so-called friends and associates. Just thought he was a real friendly guy with a lot of friends. While running the practice, Larry would host lavish parties for his coworkers in his new home in Devon. They'd have lobster and champagne. He fit right in with his next door neighbor, who happened to be the son of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I was fairly young myself and fairly naive and just assumed because he was a dentist from Penn that he could afford something like that. Besides the fact that I had also been told by him that he had a seat on the stock exchange, he was a producer of the Double Dutch Bus song, he had interest in an up-and-coming boxer among other investments. So it really was no surprise to me to see that he was living sort of lavishly. I just assumed that he was a wealthy, self-made young entrepreneur. At this point in time, Larry was also starting a family. In May of 1982, his son Chris was born weighing just over seven pounds. You know, it's just so great to have a son and I'm hoping to be the father that I felt my father probably wasn't. You know, the age difference is this bigger thing. I you know, can't wait till all these times you're going to teach him how to play baseball and all this other stuff. But it's hard to say how different that makes you think about things, but it, it really does. And so now almost all my moves are defensive moves to try to stay out of trouble. By far the most important defensive move for Larry was getting out of the cocaine business. He'd already taken a backseat to the day-to-day operations, but he was still involved with the big picture. With his priorities realigned, he wanted it to be out of sight and out of mind. But there was a problem, one that Larry had been grappling with for years. He struggled to find someone who could run the business as well as he had. He was worried that the new boss would be sloppy, get caught, and lead authorities right back to him. But with his dental practice in full swing, his wife losing patience, and his son now being born, it was time to choose a successor. So David Ackerman was someone who had gone through Penn as a Penn Scholar. What that means, you finished in three years rather than four. These guys are are really bright, if you can do that. And he was kind of like this smart whippersnapper. David, people often wonder why I would give David the business, but David was one of the only ones that I could tell exactly how you make things and how you do it, and he could remember it all. Other people thought that was foolish to even be involved in processing this stuff. They just wanted to buy it and hand it out the way it was, and David saw the benefits and the virtue of doing it the way I was doing it. And just like that, Larry's Enterprise had a new president. There was no ceremony, pageantry, or parade down Broad Street with the Mummers. This changing of the guard consisted of a simple handshake and a large sum of money. Larry chose David because David believed in Larry's business methods. But David had a personal problem. David came to run the business. He was very bright. 
and very well organized, but he also became a raging coke addict. He ended up in rehab. His cocaine binges became famous. This is Carol Saline, the Philadelphia journalist who covered Larry's story in the 80s and author of Dr. Snow. David, sometimes he would run out of coke. He was a desperate addict. It was very, very sad. He would go nuts. He would call a million people. Do you have anything? Can you get me something? He would get down on his hands and knees and crawl around like a dog trying to find a little piece of coke, a rock that had fallen into the carpet. It was so pathetic. He totally destroyed his life. Larry's choice was flawed. David was struggling to handle the business under the crushing weight of his cocaine addiction. And Larry's longtime friends and customers, like Billy Motto, were not adjusting well. So I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, you could stay with David if you like. So I tried it. And it was totally different. It was always late and it was sloppy and it, it was all messed up. I begged him. I told him about David. And I kept telling him about it, but he didn't get it. So I go back to Larry and I say, Larry, I can't work with this guy. Larry didn't see it yet. But it didn't take long for David to fall out of favor with Larry. Larry was still taking 50% of the profit, even though he wasn't running the business. After all, it was his capital, his contacts, his business. But David still thought he deserved a better deal. Larry was actually back in Haverhill, Massachusetts, celebrating his birthday with his family when he received a call. I was up at my parents' place, and I get a call from David, and David says that I got to give him a larger percentage, and he's like quailed out or something. It's another one of those times I probably lost my temper a little bit. I remember telling my wife, pack up our bags, we're out of here. My parents are shocked. It's my birthday, I'm there. And I go down there, and I walked into David, and I just threw him into the drywall, and I said, you're done, you're out of here. I get a phone call from Larry, and uh, we go eat something, and he says, listen, you were right. I'm taking it back from David. I'm bringing it back. So I took back over the business and put my people in position and still kind of sat back and let them run things. So it really changed because the people that I knew that were all going to graduate school or starting their careers, they weren't interested in this anymore. So it was a different group that had to bring in to do that. So now I'm in that situation. What am I going to do? You know, I could care less about making more money at this point. I'm more concerned with, you know, how can I get rid of this business without bringing more heat on myself? So I come up with the idea that I'm going to sell my business. But I need to find someone that I think can run it without... I'm just so afraid that some of these people are going to make some amateur moves, get in trouble, get me arrested. Larry took control before David could do any serious damage. But the team that Larry originally assembled was disintegrating. Their reliable runner, Willie Harcourt, had an epiphany on a flight from Miami to Philly. I came back from a a big run. It was 15 kilos, and it was being driven back, and I flew back. And as I was taking off on the plane over Miami, there was a thunderstorm, and the thunder was crackling outside the plane, and I'm looking out there, and, and it just hit me. It hit me like a pail of water. But you know what, you're, you're a goddamn criminal. And you know, you might be making 50 grand a month or whatever it is, but you're a criminal. 
you know, I was a Boy Scout. I was a basketball captain. You know, I had a fairly straight and narrow life plan for myself, except for this detour. But then I realized that, you know, it was far more serious than a detour. So I quit. I drove out to Larry's house and I said to him, dude, I'm quitting. You need to quit too. Our time is up. I said, you're sitting in this beautiful home. You've got a wife and a child and another one on the way. You've got millions of dollars in cash. What the fuck more do you need? You're risking all of this on what? More cocaine runs? This doesn't make any sense. And he was like, oh, Willie, I'm never going to get caught. And he actually said that. It's a direct quote. I'll never forget it. And I thought to myself, man, the hubris of this guy, I'm never going to get caught. Yes, you are. The odds are against you. Larry's exit from the business was unsuccessful. He was back, and yeah, maybe he was hands-off, managing from a distance and looking for a buyer, but he was back. He was worried that his secret life would be exposed if he handed it off to somebody else. But he should have been worried about his not-so-secret life. Remember when Larry got kicked out of Exeter? He was expelled for having a pot den in his dorm room. But that wasn't what got him caught. Larry had given the secret master key to a kid who left a pile of snacks in the middle of Larry's room as a thank you gift, which eventually led to the pot den. There's always a blind spot, something out of your control, a variable you don't account for. Well, within weeks of Willie's resignation, Larry heard from his business partner, Mark Stewart. So at some point, Mark Stewart calls me, he tells me over the telephone that a couple IRS agents had come to pay him a visit and want to look at his records. Once he explains it further, I believe Frankie Smith has complained about not getting enough royalties. Mark Stewart obviously has gotten me upset at this point. I've tried to eliminate almost any contact I can have with him, if at all possible. And of course, you know, Mark used as much hyperbole as he could to just say that, uh, you know, he's got this under control and he'll be able to cover it. But my feeling was that this is extremely serious. And um, I think it's my first thoughts of going to talk to a lawyer after hearing some of this. As Larry circled the wagons, authorities continued digging into Mark Stewart's business affairs. The case was assigned to a young FBI agent with a background in auditing named Chuck Reed. That name didn't mean anything to Larry, but if he'd known more about Agent Reed, it would have meant a lot. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
my dad did not look like an FBI agent. He was a bigger guy. He was probably about 6'2", 240, somewhere in that range. Kind of had shaggy hair with like the split in the middle. So he definitely wasn't your typical looking FBI agent. He didn't like to wear suits. He wore jeans and golf shirts, maybe a baseball hat if he could, but he was quiet, maybe a little intimidating to people that didn't really know him. But for me, more importantly, he was my dad. He was my little league coach. This is Kelly Reed, Chuck Reed's son. I roomed with Kelly at Penn State University. He's the one who introduced me to the Larry Lavin story. He didn't fill the room with noise. So it was, I think people were always trying to figure out what's this guy thinking. He wasn't a bullshitter. You know, not a lot of words, but very smart. And he was working in an accounting firm and some FBI agents came in to get some records. I think he worked with them for a few afternoons. And some of the agents suggested, hey, you should maybe think about this. You'd be really good at this with your analytical mind and the way you look at things. From a kid's perspective, I just remember the amount of work and the time at work was dramatically increased during big cases. And this was his biggest case. When Chuck Reed became involved in this case, it was strictly a white-collar crime investigation. Musical artists were alleging that they were getting ripped off by the same guy whose arena was recently torched in a suspected arson incident. It was the kind of financial knot that Chuck Reed was famous for untangling. The FBI first gets a hold of Mark Stewart when he declares bankruptcy. And Frankie Smith, who made the record Double Dutch Bus, came to the FBI and he said, I think that this guy who owns the record company and declared bankruptcy is stealing from me and he owes me a ton of money in royalties. Chuck Reed was trained as an accountant and he loved pouring over data and trying to find this connection to that connection. So he got this bankruptcy case and he started to follow the money. Chuck Reed was tasked with trying to figure out what's going on. Is it true what this singer is saying? And obviously someone believed his story, rightfully so, and decided to launch a major investigation. I start to hear Mark calls and tells me a couple agents came in and were asking him questions. Obviously this sets alarms off in my head, like what the heck's gonna happen here? But you gotta realize how difficult this is. There was one room apparently that the FBI has with copies of checks, and I believe they had somewhere like 8,000 or 10,000 canceled checks just in that that they had to review. There's a lot of businesses going on, and that's why I always felt I could hide a expense when you buy a BMW or something, because Mark was buying and selling so many different things, I thought I could get away with it. Despite that, Larry was concerned that he might get busted with some kind of tax evasion charge. But he was confident that there was nothing about WMOT records that would have indicated his involvement with dealing cocaine. Reed starts to look into this and he starts to talk to people associated with Mark Stewart. And Reed realizes, as a good FBI agent, that one of the people you can usually get information from is an ex-wife. So he gets a hold of Mark Stewart's ex-wife 
And she starts to talk to him about Stuart. And she says, but if you really are looking at something interesting, you ought to look at Larry Lavin and cocaine. And this was the first time the word cocaine entered the story. And Reed's eyes got huge. Whoa, cocaine. Now the plot thickens because Larry Lavin is on multiple checks in the bankruptcy. It should have been turned over to the DEA or to the drug department in the FBI. And Reed said, nope, I want to keep this case. And so Reed decides at this point to go pay a visit to Larry Lavin and see what kind of information he can get. Beth comes in and tells me that there's two FBI agents out in my waiting room that want to speak to me. And, you know, they're asking questions, firing left and right. You know, I answered a few of these questions, but once we reach an impasse, and I'm obviously not going to say much more, all of a sudden they start pulling out paperwork and slapping it down on the desk. You know, I'm just telling them, you know, you have to speak to my lawyer. And Chuck was off the walls, you know, jumping all over and, and peppering questions quicker than you could answer them. And he's telling me that this is your chance to cooperate. We can make all this go away. And obviously that's not my plan. I'm, I'm not going to be doing that. Larry is cold as ice. He tells him nothing. And Reed, being Reed, is aggressive and blunt. He was very rigid in his thinking. You were right or you were wrong. And sometimes when he was interrogating people, he could get downright nasty. They formed an instant dislike for each other. I mean, an intense dislike. And Reed left there saying, I'm going to get this guy one way or another. And Larry said to himself, I'm never going to give this guy a thing. At this point, all Chuck Reed really had was a rumor from Larry's business partner's ex-wife. Not exactly an ironclad piece of evidence. There were abundant signs of shady and perhaps illegal business practices. But Larry Lavin and cocaine? That was hearsay. Until the FBI received an unexpected call. Their colleagues at the FBI office in Phoenix had been surveilling a coke dealer who had talked about doing business with a dentist in Philadelphia. The feds in Phoenix had tapped this guy's phone and intercepted a call between him and Larry Lavin. They talked shop and Larry was heard saying, they're gonna know kind of behind the scenes what's going on, but I don't think they can prove that. The tip from Phoenix supported the rumor from Mark Stewart's ex-wife and motivated the FBI to expand the scope of the investigation into potential drug trafficking. And now that it went beyond Reed's specialty of financial crimes, a second FBI agent was assigned to the case by the name of Sid Perry. About a year into the case, Perry joined the FBI in Philadelphia and was assigned to work with Reed. Sid was about 5'11", slender. He dressed beautifully. He used to always wear suits or a sport coat and a tie. He was elegant and he had a bit of a Southern accent and he was charming. Everybody loved Sid Perry. He laughed a lot. He was as friendly and warm and charming as Chuck was the opposite. Interestingly, as different as they were, they both were dogged agents. 
What they had in common was, if you cross me, I'm going to get you one way or another. Chuck Reed and Sid Perry surveilled Larry and his associates diligently. They eventually learned that Larry was trying to make moves with this business. They had gathered a fair amount of information and they learned that Larry was selling his business to a guy named Franny Burns. It was a big slovenly pig of a guy, but had a very, very large drug ring. Larry and Franny, short for Francis, started off as competitors. Franny had made inroads with some of Larry's clients, which didn't sit well with Larry. So he wasn't Larry's most trusted ally, but he was an experienced dealer. And given the FBI investigation, Larry couldn't be too picky. So he sold Franny the business for half a million dollars, and Franny ran it out of a nondescript fast food chain. Franny Burns owned a Dairy Queen in suburban Philadelphia. So the FBI, Perry and Reed, decided that they should start to pay attention to Burns, that this might help them with Larry Lavin. So they parked across the street from the Dairy Queen, and they used to watch him come out six, seven times a day. And there were three payphones in this little shopping center. And each time he would go to another payphone and another payphone. Chuck and Sid believed that Franny was either talking to or about Larry. And they were dying to know the content of those conversations. But there was a problem. Larry was too cautious to use his home phone for business calls. And evidently, he had instilled the same discipline in his partners. In fact, Larry's precautions went beyond using a payphone. One time he comes to my house and he tells me about the phones. We already knew not to talk on phones. We were talking on payphones, but it's inconvenience, right? So Larry comes to my house one day and he's got a ladder and he asks me if I have an aunt or a grandmom within a mile radius of my apartment. I says, yeah. So we go there first and he puts an antenna up on our roof. He does himself. I can't bang a fucking nail on the wall, right? Then we go to my apartment. And before we have dinner, he puts the antenna on my roof. And he takes out this big bulky pack. I said, what's this? He said, whenever you want to talk to me now, he says, you talk on his phone. So what that did was when the FBI were recording us on our own lines, we were talking actually on somebody else's line. That was a genius idea. The FBI duo knew that bugging Larry's home would probably yield no results. So Chuck and Sid tried something a little unconventional. In most cases, you can only get wiretaps on private phones. In this case, they wanted them on eight public phones, too, that they knew that Lavin used. So in order to get a wiretap and not just blithely invade someone's personal life, the FBI agents had to show an amazing amount of evidence why the wiretap was necessary. And to get that evidence, they had to do hours and hours of surveillance. They had this document 185 pages thick that they gave to the judge with why they wanted the wiretap. I was astonished when I spent time with them to see how broadly they had to support every single thing that they wanted permission to do. So they finally got permission for the wiretap in 1983. So for 24 hours, night and day, for over a month, there were eight phones tapped. Six of them were public phones. One was Burns and one was Larry's. This was one of the largest wiretaps in Philadelphia history, 
They also tapped phones in his dental practice for good measure. Larry and his team never believed that the calls on payphones would be recorded, so the discussions were candid and damning and would be highly persuasive to a jury. So after the wiretap, the next stage is to convene a grand jury, and Perry was selected to present all of the evidence to the grand jury. And that went on for five or six weeks. And the grand jury agreed that these people should be arrested. And then Perry and Sid put together a group of agents and planned the day for the big arrest. On the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 1984, Larry Lavin kissed his wife and two-year-old son goodbye and drove to his dental practice. But first, he needed to drop a few things off. He jumped in his car and headed down the Schuylkill Expressway. I'm on my way to my dental practice and I decided I want to get rid of anything in my house that could cause problems. I had something I used to make fake IDs and I had some things made that were seals for corporations and I had altered these with Dremels like dental tools and made it so that I could make these birth certificates and baptismals. So I think I, I probably should throw this stuff away. I don't want to throw it in my own trash because I'm afraid they're picking up my trash. I'm driving to my dental practice and rather than turn into the driveway, I continue, I'm going to the strip mall across the street because there's a big dumpster there. Well, they think I've seen them. I didn't notice anything going on. And they leap onto the hood of my BMW with shotguns screaming, don't move, you know, step out of the car. And I'm trying to explain to them, it's a stick shift, it's a standard. If I don't, you know, shut it off properly, I'm just gonna run you over, you know? And uh, so there's some screaming back and forth for a while. And they arrest me and unfortunately they got those things that I had in my briefcase. Imagine all of a sudden you're being handcuffed in front of your dental office. I'm trying to convince one to go in and tell the patients that I won't be there. My name was Chuck saying, we're gonna go and scream that you're a drug dealer. And, and Sid Perry instead went and told them so she could cancel the appointments. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. My first reaction when Larry called me was total shock and surprise. This is Beth Graziani again, Larry's longtime dental assistant. He told me that he had been arrested and he was calling me from the jail, I believe it was in Westchester, PA, and asked me to please go into the office and field phone calls from patients, cancel patients and answer the telephone and um, try and explain things to the patients. Everything did feel like it was coming down on me. I was the primary employee at that office. I felt like I was just being bombarded and overwhelmed with questions about him. People were attacking his name and it was hard for me to absorb, you know, one day this person is somebody to you, and the next day, he's somebody else entirely. He's probably the last person on earth that I would ever expect to be arrested for being a drug-dealing kingpin. Larry was indicted on five total counts, four tax-related charges, and something called a continuing criminal enterprise. Larry's bail was set at $150,000 due to no prior records. Up until Larry's arrest, he was represented by a tax lawyer in anticipation of potential charges for tax evasion. But now that he was being charged with major drug trafficking crimes, it was a whole new ballgame. His lawyer thought he'd be better served by someone with recent experience in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So Larry's lawyer recommended him to a prominent criminal defense attorney named Thomas Bergstrom. My initial impressions came from the lawyer who referred the case to me from what he knew of the evidence and from what he knew of what the government had at their disposal, it was not going to be easy. They had a lot of confidence in their case and they had a lot of strength in their case. That was very clear to me from the very beginning. First of all, you're dealing with the federal government, you're dealing with the FBI, you're dealing with the Internal Revenue Service, and you're dealing with the United States Attorney's Office. And they're not prone to bluster. So it wasn't a whodunit at all. I mean, it was pretty clear that they had a lot of documents, they had a lot of records, they had a lot of testimony from a lot of co-conspirators and co-defendants, and there were multiple prosecutors involved in the case. There were multiple agents involved in the case. And I came to learn, obviously, that this was one of the largest cases that they had in the office at the time and probably one of the largest cases they'd ever had. The most serious charge on Larry's indictment was the continuing criminal enterprise also known as the Kingpin Statute. It's the same charge recently levied against Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. In 1984, it was a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence without the option for probation or parole. 
they're considering me the kingpin in this case. It's funny, even when you're running something like that, you just don't think of yourself as a kingpin. I still thought they're not going to catch me with any kilos of cocaine or anything, so they're going to get me for tax evasion. How much time could I do for this tax evasion? And that was my general feeling. But, you know, Tom enlightened me that's probably not going to be the case. It's looking worse than that. Obviously, you know, they'd love to get me to cooperate, and I won't talk to them. And um, so things are getting worse and worse as more and more people will call and tell me how these two agents have just come and talked to them. And this one agent, Chuck Reed, is trying to scare him, tell him, we're going to tell Larry you're cooperating. He'll probably have you and your whole family killed. And they'd get up and laugh and, like, drop their pants or something. I mean, they've known me their whole life. They're saying, that's not going to happen, you know. And uh, But, you know, that's the heavy-handedness that people come down with. But the hope is that they're not going to talk and tell things. You know, I was pretty naive realizing the power the government has is just unbelievable to make these people talk. But so I'm starting to get a realistic picture that things aren't looking real well. The feds continued to expand its network of co-conspirators as cooperating defendants led to more arrests. They called it the Yuppie Conspiracy. The government accused them of trafficking 110 pounds of cocaine across 14 states as well as D.C. and pulling in over $5 million per month. They seized 85 kilograms of nearly pure cocaine with a street value of $20 million, as well as 15 cars, an airplane, a boat, four residential properties, jewelry, gold, silver, and various weapons. A total of 2.2 million in cash, 528 grand of which was found buried in the ground, was also recovered. Anyone who was involved with Larry's network was in trouble. Well, Larry kept talking about the heat, right? Started out like as a, a bunny case, and he would fill me in that it's getting worse and worse. But I had no idea what it would be like. He gets indicted and makes a lot of noise in the paper. And I'm going out and still going out in clubs, right? And people that I met through Larry would say, wow, they want you. So I knew something was coming down. I knew I was going to be under indictment. So that's when I knew it would be serious and uh, started doing what I had to do to prepare for that, about going away and mentally and physically and didn't sleep home certain nights knowing they would come in the morning. I took a trip to Italy with my wife and lawyer said, you could come back. You know, I did. And it was father's day and, uh, June 17th. And I said, let me go home and sleep home. My first time with my baby. You know, I usually didn't on Mondays cause that's when they usually came that morning. They came in, she said they're at the door and she was, you know, afraid of course, my wife. And, uh, I went downstairs. They said, Billy Mono. I said, yeah. And he says, I said, was it an indictment? He says, yep. I said, I said, if you mind if I brush my teeth, I know I'm going to be in jail a while. And he says, yeah, about 20 years. <laughs> so the first indictment is for eight people. If you're handed like a 50-page indictment and you're flipping these pages over and you see each of us with our names and our AKAs and they've got these diagrams showing me on top of this, like, you know, like a Venn diagram or something showing me on top of these lists of people and they're all my lieutenants. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on here? Larry returned home to see his name and mugshot everywhere in the Philadelphia media, from KYW to Channel 6 News to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Before long, his story made it to the national news circuits like the New York Times and his favorite newspaper, USA Today. You turn on the TV, every channel is showing the story. You know, yuppie kingpin, and they're going and you know flipping channels. It's just like something you see in a movie. You just can't believe this is what's going on. Then I 
next day i think go to my practice and all the news companies are out front you know and you're trying to work your way through that and see patients that you have set up larry was shocked when he was arrested to find that he was being charged under kingpin statute that he was being accused of being the head of a large criminal organization of course he was but he had never seen it in that way this is mark bowden author of dr dealer this was just a you know a bunch of his friends who liked to party and who sold party drugs together and even though they were now making millions of dollars for some reason it had escaped larry's conception of himself that he was actually the head of a large criminal organization. The big question for Larry after he was arrested and charged was whether he would cooperate with the authorities. He probably could have bargained away the most serious charges against him and gotten out of all of this serving five to seven years in prison, but he couldn't imagine himself turning on all of his friends. So he found himself trapped These were very serious criminal charges, certainly more than he'd ever imagined. The only obvious way to get out of it was to cooperate with the feds, who he had come to despise, and turn on his friends, who had trusted him. Neither was an acceptable course for him. With the walls caving in around him, Larry was running out of options. His lawyer, Tom Bergstrom, made it clear that Larry was going to prison. It was just a matter of how long. But Tom believed that there was actually an opportunity for a favorable plea deal, which would, among other things, require Larry's cooperation with the government. I saw some daylight with respect to what we could work out from a sentencing standpoint. But we were talking about trying to structure a plea that would avoid the 848, obviously, and see if we could structure a sentence that would be in the 10 to 12-year range maybe even as high as 15 years, but not a minimum mandatory. My strategy in that was simply to lay out everything that I knew about him at the time, okay? And that included, you know, his youth, his family, his two children, his wife was pregnant. He could cooperate with the government. Nobody got physically harmed as a result of what he did. He's a dentist. He's going to lose his license, but someday he'll get it back. He's got a family to care for. All of the things that you would say about him, you know, and they're all good. Eventually, Larry seemed to fully grasp the gravity of his situation. He had two choices. Plead not guilty, go to trial, lose, and go to jail for probably around 20 years. Or plead guilty, get a lesser sentence, and cooperate with the feds. Larry didn't like his options. He knew that the evidence against him was probably insurmountable, and he couldn't stomach the idea of ratting on his friends. But in typical Larry Lavin fashion, he never let anyone see him sweat. It struck me that he was somewhat aloof about it all. You know, he wasn't wringing his hands over it. Um, He wasn't begging for help, for example. He wasn't saying, what can we do? How do I get out of this? You know, there was none of that. And it struck me as really odd, because here was a bright, very smart, good-looking, articulate, nice guy, really. And he just didn't seem to be worried about this. We both knew what happened here, and we both knew what the evidence was, and we both knew what we probably had to do. So there really wasn't any convincing, wasn't any mystery about what we needed to do and what the evidence was. 
I don't know how best to say it other than the fact that we both were on the same page. We knew what we had to do here. A few days before Halloween in 1984, Larry was scheduled to appear at a routine hearing alongside his attorney, Tom Bergstrom. Tom reached out to Larry to make sure he was prepared for their day in court. And I was calling him on the phone like a day before or whatever to make sure he knew that we had to be there at such and such a time, at such and such a courtroom. It was only going to take an hour or whatever. And I kept calling his office and I was not getting an answer. And I really started to get a little worried about it. I thought maybe he was sick, or maybe he was in the hospital, or maybe he had an accident, or maybe, you know, whatever. And I got a hold of his office, and somebody said, we haven't seen him today yet. I'm sure he'll be in, or whatever. But the long and the short of it is, I went down to the courthouse the next day empty-handed, and I couldn't produce him. It's like walking into the courtroom without your pants on. I mean, Your Honor, uh, I don't know where he is. Next, on Wolves Among Us. We're saying our goodbyes. And I'm like, why you gotta leave? You'll be all right. Forget about it. It's gonna be all right. The fact that he got away and there were 80 some odd other defendants that was taking the fall for something that he had masterminded and run just did not seem fair. All of a sudden, we hit something. At the same moment, I see one of the people on the boat come flying through the glass door that leads down to the cabin. To be honest, I think we're dead. Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Shupp, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker, a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.